We'll be singing that song a few more times in the coming weeks. Hope it's as much of a blessing to you as it has been to me. Please open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 3. You'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can get an usher's attention. We've got some, or you can flip the insert over, and on the other side of the insert is the text there as well. We are simultaneously studying through the book of James and Psalm 119, and we do a chunk of James back to Psalm 119. Last week, we began chapter 3, and chapter 3 is broken up into two chunks, which are part of a bigger chunk. I would suggest to you that chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through 412, is a unit in James devoted to the issue of peace and harmony, or flip it over, the possibility for conflict animosity in the body of Christ. Um, That seems to be the dominant theme. As we look at the tongue in the first 12 verses and its potential to set the community on fire, the need for us to control and tame our tongues, then the, the wisdom from above contrasted with the wisdom from below, one yielding animosity, jealousy, selfish ambition, and every vile practice. Whereas the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, Leading finally into chapter 4, what is the source of quarrels? You can see this common thread, the sources of conflict in the body. There's a second thread woven through this, and that is the axis upon which the the scattered church will evaluate and recognize their leaders. Um, the, the, The danger that poor, unqualified leadership might play in misleading the church in the use of their tongue in misleading the church in what constitutes true religion. So we see in chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And then in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? So he's talking to the entire community. This, This text, as we finished the first section on the tongue this morning, is for all of us, but it's first and foremost for those who would teach in the body. It most applies to them, and it makes sense because these are the ones who talk a lot. If you know me, I talk a lot. You don't need to laugh. That's, that's okay. Um, and so by nature of the plurality, the multiplication of words is the multiplication of the potential for great harm. So last week we saw you, you need to change, tame your tongue. This morning you must tame your tongue. James is going to escalate. He does this pretty frequently. He's going to escalate his terminology. James is going to start at one place that you might be comfortable with, And he's going to end up with strong language you may well be uncomfortable with. You you can see it here. Look at uh, verse, hold on, Um, verse 6, the end of verse 6. The tongue is set on fire by hell. That's strong language. And this demonic thread shows up again in our next section, the wisdom from below. The wisdom that says, just, yeah, you're being a jerk a little bit, but just, 20 more seconds and they'll see that you're right. That wisdom, he says, is earthly. Okay, that's not that bad. It's unspiritual. Okay, it's demonic. You see the escalation? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights? We had a little quarrel. We had a small fight. And yet in the next verse, he's talking about war and murder. And James likes to escalate things. He'll start where you're comfortable, and then he'll press and show you that things are worse than they appear. So even though what he has to say this morning is mostly negative in regard to the tongue, and 
it's going to make you realize, hopefully, that the, the, the consequence of how we use our tongue is more significant than we think. I think the underlying exhortation he's giving to his readers is a positive one. You must tame your tongue. You must. If, if you hope to, to stand before the living God on the day of judgment, if you, if you hope for heaven, you must be taming your tongue. This goes back to what he said in chapter 1. Let me point you back to where he sets this up. Verse 19 of chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person, literally, it is necessary for every person to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then most clearly of all in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. He's unpacking that here. So you got to be engaged in the activity of bridling your tongue. If you are, good. Fight the good fight. Persevere. But if you're not, you, well, we'll see at the end of this passage, you may well be other than you think you are. Let's let's read um, the first 12 verses of chapter 3. Not many of you, my brothers, should be... Let's start over again. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers... For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs them. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, set on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring Pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you'd give us eyes to see here, in particular, the importance, the need that we actively engage in, in bridling, taming our tongues that we not deceive ourselves, that by your Spirit's help, uh, by your word's help, we might be a people modeling our speech after your speech. Your word is life and light. It's true. It's full of grace. May our lips speak words that are the same. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I suggest that we can look at these 12 verses as five points James is making about the tongue. Last week, we looked at the first two, the immense importance of the tongue, 
and the disproportional impact of the tongue. And so the first point on the importance of the tongue is that it really is one of the central qualifications you should be looking at for people who are going to teach. Um, this, it's going to be the mark of maturity. James says, if anyone can control his tongue, doesn't stumble in his tongue, he is perfect or mature or complete. He's arrived. It's not necessarily the way we would evaluate Christian maturity. But yet, I would suggest to you, according to James, if you say, hey, what is the hallmark? What is the most notable evidence of Christian maturity? James would say, a man who does not stumble in what he says. That's not necessarily what we would use as the metric of Christian maturity. And remember, speech is more than just not saying the bad things. We looked at the catalog last week of all the speech both prohibited in James, things like God is tempting me or I'm going to go here or there. But there's other speech we are to do. Ask God for wisdom. There's some speech you need to be doing. Encourage one another. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. There is speech we ought to be making. So it's about controlling your tongue, taming your tongue, making your tongue obey Christ, both in speaking when you ought to speak and in the way you should speak and in not speaking in ways you ought not to speak. That's, that's what we're focusing on. It's not purely negative. We can just as easily sin through omission, and we ought to be speaking the words of life. We ought to be offering encouragement. We ought to be bringing a correction or a rebuke. We ought to speak the gospel, and we don't. A tamed tongue is a controlled tongue. That's the idea. So the first two points, the importance of the tongue. The second is disproportional impact. He uses three examples. The example of the horse and the example of the uh, boat, which is to say two examples. Two examples. Well, the next example kind of does both. The example of the fire fits both as an example of proportionality and it also links into our next point. So the example here is simply the disproportional power of it. The tongue is this small thing, and we're tempted to underestimate its significance because of how small it is. Most people I know of don't view grumbling as a sin of great importance. Yes, we know we shouldn't do it. Why did the Israelites die in the wilderness? Why did God reject them and said, they shall not enter my rest? Because they grumbled. It's a significant, big deal. And so we're tempted to underestimate its importance. So he gives us the example of the horse and the ship and how such a small thing can have such an immense effect over them. And then he turns now to the indomitable power of the tongue. The, ne- the next illustration he uses, the spark and the fire, fits with the previous set, a small thing having a great impact. But here, the emphasis has shifted. The example of the horse and of the boat, the effect is one of control. It's not a destructive effect. In some senses, it's a helpful effect. It takes something that could be chaotic and reins it in and directs it. Here, with the example of the spark and the fire, it's ravaging destruction. Uh, most of our translations, at least the ESV, starts in the middle of verse 5, a new paragraph. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
So we've got to look at the incendiary potential of the tongue. The incendiary potential of the tongue. I'm just trying to find I words to fit it all together. So sometimes you've got to stretch a little bit. Um, but, I've, but I wrote it in there so you don't have to. So. Um, so let's take a look at the example first. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And we understand this. I used to live in California. And in California, every year there's like burning season. Um, there'd be forest fires. And I know in the previous years they've been really, really bad. In fact, they were such common occurrences that it really took me a, like a week or two to realize last time they had the fires that these were actually bigger than normal fires. Because I'd go to school and there'd be like smoke on three horizons most years. And those fires can start by a carelessly put out cigarette, campfire that was left not fully attended. Huge forest fires can start from small sparks. And we understand that. And so this is linking with the previous point. So the first blank here of the example, the disproportionate impact of fire. Yeah, it's just a third example of a small thing having a great effect. But now we're bringing a new element. Whereas the bit and the rudder were control, order. Here is destruction, the destructive impact of fire. And in this sense, James is picking up on the Proverbs. Proverbs, this isn't the comparing the words to fire, nothing new. Listen to Proverbs 16, 27. A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Proverbs 26, 21. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. And I think that James is beginning here to consider more fully the impact of the tongue, not just on the individual and how the way I speak is going to affect me, but how it's going to work its way out in the community. How a little gossip can tear through a body of believers. How a little false teaching can ravage disciples of Christ. And it's a picture of a fire. So the example is the forest fire. We get two things from it. Again, disproportionately small thing, having a great effect. Second, it's destructiveness. Then James moves from simile to metaphor. The tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness set among our members. Now we get to the reality. The reality. Um, here, I'm going to go actually with the NIV's punctuation. James's framing here in Greek is, is difficult to understand exactly what he says because there's no verb. It's the tongue, fire, a world of unrighteousness set among our members. And so some take the tongue is a fire, renaming it, apposition, a world of unrighteousness set among our members. And others go with a world of unrighteousness set among our members. I think that's probably right. Um, it's a difficult case. And, and here, the, the point is, no, that it's, tongue isn't just like a fire. It is a fire. It, it, that destructive potential, that potential to spread rapidly, ravaging. Is, is true of it. A world of unrighteousness set among our members. The potential for evil of our tongue is immense. And again, we're going to be tempted to think he's exaggerating. And James, we will see, is not. Um, he gives three effects right out of the gate here of the tongue and its incendiary potential. First, he says it stains the entire body. Tongue is said among our members, staining the whole body. It contaminates. It corrupts. And your blank here is corrupts true religion. 
The last time we saw staining was in that verse at the end of chapter 1. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, the tongue here stains. It brings about the contradiction of true religion. It, it, it corrupts and contaminates. Words do this. Just think about gossip as one example. You, you say one thing as a prayer request, just one other person, and you can't take it back, and it spreads. People's reputations are taken down. Just think of one slander against somebody. One spreading of judgment, what James is going to call speaking evil of one another in chapter 4. Did you know so-and-so is a drunk? Did you know so I mean, just, I just, just want you to pray for them. The damage it can do, the way a forest fire spreads, and it stains and it corrupts and it dissolves true religion. Then we see its extent. Okay, if that's what it does, it stains. To what extent? Maybe you just have a stain on your undergarment, not your whole body. No, James wants to make this point clear. The tongue is set on among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Every aspect of life. That word, the word there for course of life, the, the natural existence, it, it's, it's setting on fire our world. And again, we may be tempted to think, that's a little much, James. I, I don't think so. But let's get to his strongest statement at the end of verse 6. And set on fire by hell, its source. So the effect, it stains to what extent setting on fire the entire course of life. And where does this spark come from? It comes from hell. Now the word there translated hell, Gehenna, is a transliteration of a Hebrew term, which is the valley of Hinnon, which we learn of in 2 Kings 23.10, is where um, they used to sacrifice children to Molech. And Josiah, during his reform, tore it down and turned it into a constantly burning garbage pit. And so it became identified as a place of evil. And this is the term Jesus uses to speak of hell. In fact, the only other person in the Bible to use this term this way, Gehenna, translated hell here, is Jesus. 11 times. Give, give you one example. Matthew 5.22, I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable of the hell of fire. That's Gehenna. And again, we're seeing some of James' dependency on Jesus' teaching. We've seen again and again, and we'll see again this morning, that what James is saying in many respects is taking what Jesus said and, and amplifying, developing that. We're to see his examples and his teaching coming right off his older half-brother, Jesus. And just like Jesus, he speaks of hell. So what does he mean by that? What he means is the use of our tongue is, is, is devilish. And now let me explain to you why I don't think he's exaggerating the significance of words. When Satan wanted to bring the world into ruin, how, how did he do so? Did he launch an attack, like a physical warfare attack? Did he, did he begin to murder and kill? He started the conversation. He asked some questions. He talked. 
right? Death, disease, the pandemic around us can all be traced back to a conversation in a garden. How did Satan deceive the woman? He talked to her. Words matter. Our words have great impact. God's word has great impact. We're image bearers. Our words have great impact. And the devil from the beginning is a liar, Jesus says, meaning from the beginning, from the garden, he's lying. You won't die. And so that type of speech has an archetype in a father is the devil. Jesus makes this point in John 8. You're of your father, the devil. Your desire is to do his will. He's a liar from the beginning. You're lying about me. He's a murderer from the beginning. You're trying to kill me. I know whose family you're part of, Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him in John 8. And so here, James is making it clear that the potential for evil in our tongues goes throughout the whole world, stains all of life, and its source is hell. It's just going to go hand in hand with the wisdom the quote-unquote wisdom we're going to see in a few weeks that tells you to go ahead even though you're being a jerk. That wisdom is demonic. You can see this lining up. There's a devilish way of speaking and there's a demonic form of arguing. That's James's point. And again, he, he expects we're underestimating the significance of the problem. He expects we're going to minimize. Yeah, I was a little rude. Yeah, I was a little sharp. Sorry I was snippy with you. Sorry I was speaking the language of hell to you. Might be a good way to confess being snippy sometime. If we're to remember the significance of what it is we're doing. So that's the incendiary potential of the tongue. And again, Satan didn't say a bunch of curse words in the garden. When we're thinking of evil speech, we tend to think of coarse profanity, which of course is wrong and prohibited and forbidden. Most of us don't have much of a problem after becoming a believer stopping that. If that's all you think James is talking about, you're going to say, oh, good, I'm all set. The serpent wasn't dropping F-bombs, but he was questioning the wisdom of God and citing his image bearers to rebel against him. The tongue is set on fire by hell. So the potential for the tongue to do such great harm, the potential for our words to spread and ravage and devour just as the serpent's words in the garden had such great effect. That's what he wants us to see. Next, we're going to look at the indomitable power of the tongue. The indomitable power of the tongue. And and James, as you've seen, he likes examples. He likes to illustrate what he's saying. And, And he's going to give us this illustration here. Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed. And has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So first, the example is zoological. And here's the point. All types of creatures, all creatures have been tamed by man. You just go to the Des Moines Zoo, and you can see all the great predators, all the powerful beasts, all the winged birds, tamed. In one respect, this is fulfilling the command of dominion. But by the way, the fourfold division mimics the fourfold division of God speaking in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So James is linking back to God gave man this dominion command, and in large respects, man is fulfilling this. Are we able to go to deeper and deeper trenches in the ocean? Are we able to go further and further into outer space? Man's potential for taming his environment, for taming the largest of creatures, is, is great. There's no creature we've, we've encountered that we've given up the idea of taming. We, 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 can either, we have done it or we will do it. That's the contrast. On the one hand, there's this great potential for exercising dominion, for exercising control. We could even add in, we can put bits in horses' mouths as a way of controlling those powerful beasts. We can put rudders on boats to make them withstand gale force winds. We're good at controlling other things. Yet no human being can tame the tongue. Now, what's James saying here? Is he, is he really saying this is an impossible task? And if it is an impossible task, then why encourage us to do it? Well, I don't think it's impossible in that sense. What he literally says is, no person of man can tame the tongue. It's not within our natural power. But I think it can be within the power of the Holy Spirit and the new birth. I think that is something we can strive after. And James has already told us, if we ever arrive at pure speech not stumbling. We, we're, we're, we've arrived. We're full grown. We're mature. We're perfect. But certainly, James believes, and I believe, we can grow in taming our tongue. We can get it more and more under our dominion. We can bring it more and more in obedience to Christ. And so, of man, naturally speaking, no, it's not possible. Not possible at all. All creatures have been tamed by man, but the tongue is untamable by man. Now, turning your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the only other books I'm going to ask you to turn to are Matthew and Luke. I want you to see how this is in line with Jesus' teaching. James is not making strong statements on his own. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. And see what Jesus has to say. You may begin to see from where James ends up how he's borrowing from or starting. I think he's starting from a passage like this when he's thinking of what he's going to say to the scattered churches. Matthew twelve thirty three. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers... How can you speak good when you are evil? Of man, it is not possible to control the tongue and to speak good. I don't mean speak well, I mean speak good. That which is good. That which is right. And so Jesus makes it clear, look, and and the reason we know from what else Jesus taught is because there is a direct Connection between what is in your heart and what comes out of your mouth. And by, by implication, a person who only what came out of their mouth was good would have only what is good in their heart. That's the idea. That's the reasoning why such thinking is impossible to arrive at, but is a goal we can pursue and grow in. The untamable by man. Let me get to the reality as he's going to make us understand the tongue has the potential for even far greater evil. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Okay, restless 
evil. Your blank here is unstable. The word for restless is the same word back in chapter 1. The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He's restless in all his ways. He's vacillating. And one of the connections James is going to make and is about to make is this duplicity, this splitness, this forkedness of our tongues that can go one way and say something nice and then another way and say something biting. It is a restless evil. It's an evil inside like that wave in the ocean going back and forth, ready to strike out in any direction at any time. That's that's the idea. It is a restless, unstable evil. It, It produces disorder. It's full of deadly poison. Here, the idea is it's infectious. It spreads, it contaminates, and it contaminates to others. And again, we're still borrowing on this serpentine imagery. The devil, the serpent of old, the snake in the garden, the tongue is full of poison. You're seeing how he's making this this comparison, right? And of course, this is echoing Psalm 104. Verse 3, which is quoted by Paul in Romans 3, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. More biblical imagery. That the tongue is, it has the potential for tremendous evil and tremendous good. James is primarily focusing on the evil aspect. Which might maybe just be an entirely discouraging message, but be encouraged to pursue st- Taming your tongue, James would remind us of the propensity for great evil. For great evil. A little grumbling can spread to others. I think about that. The, the 12 spies went to spy out Canada, 10 were bad, 2 were good. 10 men come back with a little grumbling, a little complaining, and it spreads to the entire people of Israel. And then they have to wander around in the wilderness for year after year. I mean, they could have gone in right then and there, taken the land, taken possession of it. Ten men came back grumbling and fearful and speaking, and their words spread. And the bad report they gave spread. And we can give example after example of how speech can do these types of things, affect, influence people. It is full of deadly poison. Some other Proverbs making this point abundantly clear. Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, Proverbs 15.4, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And one of the qualities of the excellent wife in Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So, The first point we looked at this morning is the tremendous potential for evil a tongue has. The second point is its tremendous power. It's a small thing, but if you think you're going to tame this small part of your body, you got another thing coming. If you think it's not going to put up a fight, you think it's not going to lash out, you think you're just going to be able to easily, in your own strength, control your tongue, think again. We can exercise dominion over So many portions of the creation, and yet of man it is impossible. The reality, it's unstable and it's infectious. Which brings us to the the culmination. He's going to demonstrate this. What we get next is a demonstration of this restless evil, of this venomous poison. And then it's going to end with some rhetorical questions as we look at the inconsistent plurality of the tongue. The inconsistent plurality of the tongue. 
With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And he gives us an example of the type of evil it's capable of. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. First plank, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And this is holy right. We, when we bless God, we don't bless us the greater one. We, we declare his blessedness. That's the idea. What, what have you done this morning? You've gathered. We've sung songs. We've, we've ascribed praise and glory to God with our tongues. And yet some of us may have attacked family members on the way to church with our tongues. Some of us are going to go home to lunches that will be contentious and quarrelsome. That's what James is pointing out. On the one hand, we can ascribe praise to the living God, our Father, and that very same tongue can moments later cut down, belittle, berate people who bear God's image. That is the type of potential for restless evil and deadly poison in the tongue. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse his image bearers. Now, this is interesting. The Bible tells us we're made in the likeness and image of God in Genesis 1. That's obviously what James is referencing back to. And I have seen so many journal articles and books trying to unpack in what ways do we image God. Yet the only other times the Bible hits on this point afterwards, it goes in a different direction. In Genesis 9, we're told, you put to death murderers. Why? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. We put to death murderers not because of the value inherently of the person they killed, but because of the attack on the dignity of God in them attacking someone who bears his image, his mark, his likeness. So in other words, in Genesis 9, we don't get told the what of the image of God. We don't get any more information of what does it mean we bear God's image. We get the so what. Because we bear God's image, we honor it in our brothers and sisters. We honor it in other people. And those who dishonor it in other people, to an extreme enough measure, we kill. That's what we get. Well, it's interesting. This is the same notion here. No more information of what it means to bear God's image and likeness. But again, there's a clear implication. How can you praise God... And then curse people who resemble him, who bear his mark, his stamp, his image. Listen to 1 John 4.20 that makes this point explicitly that James is making by implication. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That person annoying you, Somewhere else, don't look. That person you struggle loving is the closest thing you're going to see to God this side of eternity. You've not seen God, but your neighbors sitting around you bear his mark, his image. They're the closest thing to God you're going to see this side of eternity. You can't tell me you love God and praise God and then attack those people who bear his image. That's what... John says, and that's what James is saying here, this, this terrible inconsistency. 
He also calls God our Father, which links back to chapter 1 of his own will. He birthed us. And so there's a secondary implication. Not only does the people bear his image, but insofar as you're speaking and cursing people in the community of Christ, you're cursing his birthed children and family members. I'm not going to take you seriously if you say nice things to me if you're cursing my children. I'm not going to be impressed and flattered if I hear you cursing my children and then try to say nice things to me. And that's just an earthly example. God births his children by his word. He dies for them. He redeems them. He loves them. And he is not fooled or impressed when we say great things to him in prayer, great things to him in our song, when we confess wonderful things to him, and then we rip apart and devour each other with our tongues. And yet we all know the great potential for that reality to be true. This is the the best illustration James has got of the restless evil of the tongue, that we're able of that type of hypocrisy, that type of forked splitness within us, the splitness that marks the man doubting. He's double-minded. The Greek literally split-souled. He's just inwardly divided. That's going to show up at the end of our section in four. The tongue is forked. We can bless God and we can curse our brothers who bear his image. This leads James then to interject. This is so distressing to him. This is such a terrible contrast that he cries out, he interrupts his own argument. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. These things ought not to be so. God has born you anew by his word. Remember back in chapter one, that's the flow of the argument. God's birthed us, therefore it's necessary because he's birthed us by his word for us to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. As, as bearing the mark of our new father. Because the Bible views parentage differently than we do. We're, we're generally caught up like with CSI, with genetic descent. The Bible generally uses parentage in that sense, functionally. So when Jesus calls people sons of the devil, he, he's not in any way disparaging their, their mother. What he's saying is, you're acting like part of the devil family. It's the like father-like son logic. It's the same logic Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called sons of God. He's not teaching justification by peacemaking. He was, what he's saying is, insofar as you make peace, you resemble and demonstrate you're part of a family of the ultimate peacemaker, God. Right? That's, that's the logic. You bless our God and Father, you better bear the family image. Or be bearing it. Working at bearing it. The tongue can be forked with it. We bless our Lord and Father and we curse image bearers. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Which brings us then to a conclusion to the reality. And this is really the warning. And this is probably the place where James is most clearly borrowing from Jesus' teaching. He asks four rhetorical questions. And the answer I'm going to give you in advance to them is not yes, but no. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening fresh water and salt water. And all God's people said, no. Good? Okay. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? No. Can a grapevine produce figs? No. 
Can a salt pond yield fresh water? No. Why? The nature of the thing determines what it yields. What do we call plants that produce olives, even if they have a sign in front of them that says grapes? Call them olive trees. What do you call a spring that yields bitter water and sweet water? A bitter spring, right? What do you call a vine that produces figs? A grapevine? No, you call it a fig tree. And this is coming out of Jesus' emphatic teaching that the tree is known by its fruit, that what is on the inside works its way outside, without exception, perfectly. And so James is saying that this type of inconsistency cannot remain. It will resolve itself. You will either become a person more and more conformed to the image of Christ with your tongue more and more under control. That's why the the command here is be taming your tongue. You won't perfectly achieve it, but be at work growing in one direction, bearing more and more good fruit, or you deceive yourself and your religion is worthless. That's the significance of whether you're engaged in the battle over your tongue. If you're not engaged in that battle, if you're giving it free reign, if it's just doing whatever it wants, James would say, you're not a Christian. If any man thinketh himself religious, my mom may be memorizing, I'm quoting the King James now, and bridleth not his own tongue, it gives you a bit of my childhood besetting sins, that she had me memorize this. Deceives his own heart. That man's religion is worthless. You don't get much clearer than saying that, but you say to yourself, oh, no, it's not that bad. It is that bad. James has just spent 12 verses making it clear it is that bad. The tongue is set on fire by hell. The tongue is a fire. It defiles. It contaminates. It spreads. It's untamable. It's restless. It's poisonous. We have the capacity, and I'm sure many of us have done it and will do it today, of saying wonderful things to God and then saying belittling wicked things to our neighbor. I mean, not that bad. Just a little gossip. Just a little cutting down. Just a little condescension. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. If you've been born of God, if you're born again, if God has adopted you into his family, his family, Mark, will become more and more evident in your life. So my my point here this morning is, is not just to condemn or to frighten, but to get us engaged in the process of controlling our tongue, speaking when we ought to speak. Not speaking when we ought not to speak. And and viewing our tongues and our words as servants of the living God. Maybe that's a helpful way of thinking it through. Which father did my words resemble today? Above or below? Which wisdom influenced my thinking from heaven or from hell? That's the idea. The, The point here, the blank here. Your speech reveals your heart and your nature. I want to drive this home. Your speech reveals your heart and your nature by Jesus' teaching. So if you still have your thumb in Matthew, we looked at chapter, um, we already looked at chapter 12. Look at chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see that James' point here, And it's, his point's really simple. Four examples. The nature of the thing determines what it produces. Figs don't grow on grapevines. They don't. 
is exactly Jesus' teaching. This is the place where he's most clearly borrowing from, dependent on Jesus' teaching. Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Interesting. He's applying this metaphor to teachers. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Wonder where James got this metaphor from. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Jesus, again, insisting the nature of the tree. What type of fruit do diseased trees bear? Bad fruit. What type of fruit do healthy trees bear? Good fruit. Your nature determines the fruit, demonstrates the fruit. The fruit proves the nature. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Turn finally over to Luke 6. Our last place of looking at this, Luke chapter 6. No one is more emphatic on this point than Jesus. Jesus makes it clear, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The reason why your words are such a clear, reliable, and accurate metric of your nature is because your, your words come right out of your heart. You know, if my children, when they get upset, say things that are not good. And when I say, whoa, what did you say there? Oh, sorry, Daddy, I didn't mean it. And i got to tell them lovingly, no, of course you meant it. You were angry. You said the angry words. Of course you meant it. Tell me you don't mean it now. Tell me you repent now. Tell me you don't want to think that way now. But in the moment, of course you did. Otherwise, really, how could I blame him if he didn't intend to do it? If it wasn't coming out of his heart, what possible moral significance could I place upon it? None. Of course I meant it in that moment. What I'm telling you now is I don't mean it now. I, I think differently. That's repentance, afterthought, a change of mind. I think differently now than I thought 10 seconds ago when I said the cutting remark. Please forgive me. Of course I meant it when I said it. Sorry, that's, that's for free. Um, Matt. Luke, well, no, because otherwise your kids are like, I didn't mean it. Well, if he didn't mean it, I guess it just sort of he got confused. And I mean, there are times where we just literally the wrong words come out, right? Um, if you've listened to my preaching long enough, you, you're familiar with that particular thing. But apart from that, of course we meant it. Look, look at Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. You get that? You can, what type of tree is that? I think it's an apple tree. What gives you that idea? Well, the apples give me that idea. Maybe the tree identifies as an orange tree. Doesn't matter. No, I don't care what, 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 what signs came on the package. I don't care what placards in front of it. If there's apples on the tree... But you haven't studied that in college. I, I don't have to. I, I don't care what paperwork you've got from the deliverer. This is an orange tree. Those are apples. I know what type of tree it is, right? But you, you and I understand the certainty with which we would insist upon that point. And I don't care what expert you get from the University of Iowa. You're, you're not going to be persuaded. You're going to say, no, don't try telling me that's an orange tree. It's an apple tree. And yet, 
when it comes to dealing with the community, we're like, well, I don't want to judge their heart. I don't know where they are with the Lord. That's really a personal matter. Jesus doesn't say so. You will know them by their fruit. What's on the inside will be evident by what comes out. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are gathered, are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. No, no one said this more emphatically and plainly than Jesus. James is not majoring on a minor point. He is simply repeating and echoing the teaching of Jesus. Now, it can be tough for us because right now, as a fallen, redeemed person, trying to bring my tongue under control, salt water does come on occasionally. There's that tension, that lack of integrity. And so we must be engaged in the battle of taming our tongues. But what I can tell you is if this isn't even something on your radar, if this isn't a battle you're waging, I'd be nervous. Because the danger is self-deceit. So I would invite all of us to ask the Lord's help, to strive, to encourage each other, to pray for each other, and be active in bringing our tongues into submission to God. James, James has gone out of his way, spent 12 verses. The tongue is more significant than you think. It's harder to control than you think. Its potential for evil is greater than you think. And its proving of your inward identity is far more certain than you think. That's what James is saying. All so that we would listen up and grow and mature in that way. Because it is necessary, my brothers and sisters, that everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let me call the worship team up and we'll sing our closing song. Maybe have a word of prayer while they come up. Lord God, um, I pray that you would give us an, uh, an awareness that goes beyond this morning, that we leave here and we remember the significance of our words, the imperative importance that we reign in our tongues, that we engage in that struggle, that we persevere in it, that we bear good fruit in increasing number, that you might be glorified, that the body might be a peaceful, harmonious place. And where we are sowing division and discord and animosity, give us the grace to see it and to repent. Let let our springs of our mouth only yield fresh water. In Jesus' name, amen.